Hi, welcome to this episode of Saintly Witnesses, where I talk to the Catholic behind the account. Today, I'm speaking with the creators of the Meet Father Rivers podcast, Emily Strand and Eric Stiles, and they're going to come on and talk about the life and ministry of the late Father Clarence Rivers. Um, so definitely thank you both for coming on and giving us this information. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, and so since it's Black History Month, I thought it'd be cool to highlight um, a very pivotal player in the American church um, that is familiar to Black Catholics, but may not be familiar to um, the general body in the American church. So definitely appreciate Eric and Emily coming on and educating the body of Christ today. Um, So let's get started with the conversation. Um, How did you two join together to create the Meet Father Rivers podcast? Well, I will start because it kind of starts with me. Um, I, um, as I talk about in the podcast, I happened to meet Father Clarence um, when I was doing research for uh, my graduate studies at the University of Dayton, which is just about 50 miles north of, of Cincinnati or 50 plus and um where he was still living at the time and um so i i studied him and i wrote my master's thesis about him and i mean it was a really um i call it the perspective taking experience of a lifetime um because he really just opened up my eyes and my mind to a whole world i hadn't considered and a lot of ideas i had never considered about liturgy and about culture and about art and um and i i knew that he you know, really shaped me as as both a liturgist and a person, um, and a musician and an artist. Um, and I felt really um, shortchanged in a sense when I mean, you know, um, when he he died very suddenly. Um, and I mean, I know other people, you know, grieved his loss as well. But I was kind of all on my own grieving his loss and and wishing that I could sustain that relationship. Um, and then, you know, obviously life, life goes on, right? And you carry those lessons forward, but they were always sort of in the back of my mind, sometimes even the front of my mind as a musician, as I, you know, choose music and um, try, to, try to make an impact with the, with the music that we sing at mass. And, um, but, but all along the, the road for the next, you know, 17 years, all along the road, I would I would kind of run into people who either I had met through Father Rivers or who um, I would discover, you know, was sort of a fan of Father Rivers like I was. And um, and then sometimes those people would say this name to me, and this name was Eric Stiles. And, and I would hear this name, and I'd be like, oh, okay, Eric Stiles. And they'd be like, yeah, it's funny because, like, he met Father Rivers kind of like you did, and, like, he's, he's about your age. And, like, you know, he's also a liturgist. And, you know, his name also starts with E. And she's know, older than me too, by the way. She's older than me. Eleven months. <laughs> Eleven. That's all. So I am the older sister. Okay. So anyway, so so like eventually, um, I just decided, especially with the pandemic, and we were all shut it, shut in at home, and just watching that this horrific thing happen to George Floyd, just on on our TVs, and being able to do nothing about it, and then all of a sudden, you know, people are are um, more interested in hearing, you know, stories from the black perspective. And, and I just kept thinking about Father Rivers. And I just kept thinking, you know, I'd been into podcasting for a while. I love podcasts. I, I um, am active, you know, in podcasting communities. And I was like, you know, Father Rivers story would make such an awesome podcast. 
And so I started thinking really hard about, about doing that, about, you know, at least presenting and like kind of documenting my own experience of Father Rivers. And again, this name, Eric Stiles, keeps coming up. And so I start to think, ah, I really need to get a hold of this person. And and you know, and I and I have to say, Eric, I had thought about you as a as a co-host of the podcast, like from early days, but like I didn't want to say it out loud because I wasn't sure like you'd be interested in this. I hadn't even met you. So anyway, so then so I'll pass the baton to Eric. Yeah, so I I um I too uh, met as we talk about in the podcast, when I, I joined the podcast, uh, maybe is it episode four? It's three or four, maybe four, five. Wow. Okay. So, um, and we just, we kind of planned it that way. Um, and so <clears throat> I, she interviews me uh, about my experience of meeting Father Rivers and getting to know him, which was a couple of years before Emily uh, had met him. And, and I was in Cincinnati as well. Uh, Emily's from Cincinnati, uh, Cincinnati area. I am from, uh, excuse me for sitting too far back from my microphone. <laughs> I'm from Chicago, but I, I went to school, uh, went to college in Cincinnati. And so she interviewed me about that. But even before that, of course, we talked. And this was, of course, during um, the pandemic and during uh, the, the aftermath of George Floyd's uh, murder. And we were, I, I think my first conversation with her was on Zoom, uh, maybe even me sitting in the same chair in my office, either here in my mm -hmm. apartment. Yeah, for sure. And we talked for an hour, maybe two. Um, we talked for three hours. Okay. All right. Fine. <laughs> that is how many hours we talked. <laughs> so there's a Just lot. Like, for the record. A, yes, we talked a long time. And, and, and there was a lot between us because um, I applied for a job that I didn't get. I applied for a job that Emily had just left at the University of Dayton. And I had heard her name. And then I heard her name from other people saying, Emily Strand wants to talk to you. I said, oh, great, great. I think I maybe tried to connect on, on uh, Instagram. Not Instagram, it was Twitter. Twitter, yeah. Um, and I, I think uh, she tried to connect me and I'm going to call her out because she got my email address wrong. It was just one letter off. Totally did. Uh, and so that why, that's why it took us as long as it did for us to connect. But um, we, we hit it off. We have a lot of similarities. Uh, we're both science fiction fans. Uh, we're both mm -hmm. into Star Trek and Star Wars, and, which we talk about um, uh, excessively, uh, obsessively. <laughs> ad, nauseum. I I, ad nauseum. I talk about it and she goes along for the ride, which is just amazing because <laughs> I don't have many people in my life. I'm not going to cry about this, but I don't have many people in my life who understand uh, this commitment that I have to Star Trek. So anyway. Uh, so we really connected, uh, having met Father Rivers in what turned out to be the last period of his life, um, at a really formative moment in our lives, I think, right? We were, you know, I think I was certainly in my late teens, if not, or I was in my early twenties and, and, and it was probably like maybe in close to the mid twenties. She was in grad school and I was an undergrad and my experience of him opened up what I, what I had previously imagined, what it might mean to be black and Catholic. And so, you know, I think we're gonna talk about this maybe later, but just meeting him or not just meeting him, seeing him was an encounter, right? So uh, that was ext extraordinarily important. And I got a chance to, to get to know him, and I, I think become a friend 
um, and to be a mentee um, and to be a minion, as we sometimes <laughs> we, have, we have a shared when one more person we have a shared uh, texting series where we call it uh, Clarence's minions. He, he referred to me once as a minion. I thought that was I, I was very pleased um, <laughs> to be called his minion and. Um, he was just a person full of life, uh, and I think he was just also um, pleasantly surprised and um, excited to have people knocking on his door, calling him, saying, "I'd like to meet you." Yeah, I'm interested I, in you. Yeah, and I like. I want to talk about your experience. I want to talk about worship. Uh, I want to talk about your language around worship being drama. Uh, and it, it was extraordinary. And I remember the day he died, and I remember um, uh, feeling, as Emily called it, um, shortchanged. I, I, I had plans, right? <laughs> this is very selfish, yeah. right? Plans to get to know, to, to work with this person again, to get to know him more, continue to get to know him, um, to, to, to be it, uh, to, to follow in his footsteps. <clears throat> and and his death obviously you know complicated that and um uh, it was a, he just was an interesting person to be around uh, and um and i just really i missed him you know so that's 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 what i would yeah. say yeah that was that's this that's how i felt as well i i just think these things would just like fall out of his mouth that were just so profound and that made you think about things that you thought you understood totally differently. And, and that was such a, there was such a thrill to that in spending time with him um, to just listen to him, just be brilliant, you know, and know that you're, feel that you're being changed by the interaction, by the encounter with him, um, that, that it was, it was, it was very difficult. I mean, he was, he was just 70, I think he had just turned 73, 73. Yeah. when he died. And so, and so it was too young. And I, I like to say that I, I'm, you know, I love Catholic funerals because I love, I love to see the um, gratitude that people have for their loved mm. ones. Um, but sometimes when somebody dies in an untimely way, it's, it makes things really difficult um, to feel that it's a particular challenge. So, so yeah, so, so on that first Zoom call with Eric, I, I finally was like around hour two and a half, I was like, well, you know. I'm going to do this podcast and probably be good if it wasn't just this white lady, you know, <laughs> making this podcast. And also you seem fun and we could talk about Star Trek too. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was so, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So, and he, yeah. you know, I was so excited that you agreed right away um, to do this without yeah. really knowing what you were getting into. <laughs> no, no. Right. And, and it is quite a bit. I mean, but it's, uh, and you know, Emily does, all of the engineering, which is, oh, I'm very grateful. Uh, and she puts together, you know, the, you know, the podcast and edits it and makes it, uh, makes it sound great. And, um, but I think that, you know, it's an opportunity to share. And I hope it becomes a document uh, of Black Catholic history, right, that we can look back and see uh, and listen and say these stories about this person from many, many different people um, help round out a picture of a person that was um, a great contributor to the American church. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing uh, and answering uh, that question. Um, so for those that are unfamiliar with the late Father Rivers, could you provide a chronology of his life and ministry? 
Yeah, <clears throat> sure. He um, he was um, born in 1931 in Selma, Alabama, and he moved to Cincinnati as a child, um, like a lot of African Americans did, um, moved north. He um, entered school, entered Catholic school. His parents put him in Catholic school, and he, um, in second grade, he fell in love with the liturgy, and he just began to be a fixture at all the the liturgies in uh the 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 school there and the parish that accompanied it and um he learned about liturgy from the inside out and then when he was in eighth grade um he expressed interest in the priesthood and um at that time um i should say before that time most african-american men who expressed interest in the priesthood were sent to bay st louis um to the african-american seminary there um but Father Rivers considered it carefully and decided, since it was newly allowed, that he would attend the seminary in Cincinnati. He was not the first African-American man ordained from that seminary in Cincinnati, um, but he was the first who was ordained, uh, he was the second who was ordained, and the first who was ordained to serve the Archdiocese of Cincinnati in 1956, which is a big deal because the first guy, Feldon Jones, he was ordained and he was sent to Trinidad, which is majority black, you know, and, and, and at that time it made a whole lot more sense, you know, to send a black priest to a majority black population to serve. So when Father Rivers was ordained in 1956, they were like, well, what do we do with this guy, you know, and we can't put him in a white parish. Well, they ended up putting him in a parish that had, um, that was, in a neighborhood that was becoming more predominantly black, or at least it was very mixed, um, uh, St. Joseph at the time. And so they put him at St. Joseph on Ezra Charles Drive in Cincinnati um, as associate pastor. And uh, at that time, he had already sort of um, developed a reputation for being interested in the liturgy. Um, he hung out at a place called the Grail or Grailville in, in Loveland, Ohio, which was a sort of a progressive Catholic retreat center um, where they did some kind of cool experimentation with the liturgy. The 1950s was a really interesting time because people were starting to get kind of bold in their experimentation with the forms of liturgy that would become normative after the Second Vatican Council, such as the dialogue mass, where people talk back and forth to each other and, and prayer forms in English. He had an English language breviary, um, you know, one of the first. Um, and so, so his pastor, who is this sort of conservative white guy um, saw the potential in Clarence for kind of engaging the congregation there. And he said, hey, why don't you think about trying to get these people to be more excited about coming to mass and not just come because they have to. And Clarence, you know, said it was a very naive response for him to say, oh, okay, you know, I think I can do that, you know, but but he did. And, um, and so he began to sort of um, cheerlead for the liturgy. Um, he tried to get people to say the responses with feeling, even in Latin, you know, teaching them more about what they meant and trying to get them to respond and seeing the, the fruit of that. And he said, you know, a lot, a lot of what he did that with was just charm, you know, and, and just his own natural people person sort of, sort of attitude. Um, and, and then, but then he began to discover, um, what it meant to really engage them through song. Um, he was challenged by um, some mentors that he had to compose music. Um, the reform of the liturgy was around the corner. 
and there was going to be a need for music in English. And somebody said to him, why don't you try? Why don't you just try composing something? And he, you know, he said, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I kind of, <laughs> I kind of didn't know I couldn't do this. And so I did it. I just did it. And he did it with a ton of success. And he, his first song was, was God is love. Um, and he um, composed it, had a scriptural text and he composed this beautiful melody that sort of married Gregorian chant with the, the sensibility of the African-American spiritual, um, uh, just a gorgeous, um, gorgeous melody, um, really transcendent. And, um, and he began to get attention, you know, not only did the school, um, the, the parish and the school embraces music, but people outside um, of Cincinnati did as well. And he was eventually invited in 1964 to sing the song at the first high mass in English in the United States at Kyle Auditorium or Kiel Auditorium in St. Louis um, in 1964. And, uh, and it was a sensation. It was an absolute sensation. And, and he said, all the Frankensteins came to life. Everybody was like on fire, you know, it was like electricity had gone through the place. And, uh, and so, and so Eric, you want to take it from there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that became the beginning of a, of a national and eventually an international career. Um, and uh, eventually, I, I'm not sure of exactly the exact order here, but eventually what he called the An American Mass Program, an album and a set of muse, uh, pieces for liturgy. He didn't call it a mass. It wasn't a mass. It was an American mass program because those pieces didn't equal up to a full liturgy, but they were they were songs to had been that had been designed to be sung at the liturgy, uh, and um, and it was recorded by a group of by the Queen's Men uh, and parishioners uh, from St. Joseph. Queen's Men was a, a high school uh, theater troupe that I think Clarence founded, but uh, was at the time the, the leader or the the advisor for. And so um, his time, excuse me, his time uh, early on was really sharing that music, uh, giving workshops, um, largely, interestingly enough, to Protestant colleges, white Protestant colleges, um, not right, right away to many black parishes or you know, black congregations. Um, that took some time as the black community uh, began to take stock of what might be possible after the Second Vatican Council in, uh, in those years around 64, 63, 64, 65. And the timing of the civil rights movement that was going on at the same time, right? And many ways, there were certainly things going on before 1968, but the radicalization of the black Catholic community in the United States can be, uh, on some significant level connected to the assassination of Dr. King in 68 uh, and the founding of the National Black Catholic uh, Clergy Caucus, which was a direct response to Dr. King's assassination. So just days before they were gonna be at an interracial, you know, many black clergy were gonna be at this interracial um, conference and they decided to meet early uh, and they made this radical statement about the Catholic Church in the United States being a white racist institution. You know, they used heavy, clear polemical language to, to, to name a moment. And so that was a radical shift in the history of the Black Catholic community in the United States. And of course, Clarence Rivers was there 
I don't, I don't think he was there at that meeting, but he was there in the zeitgeist, right? In the air of the church. And it became clear that he was going to be, and he already was, what we would call now the father of Black Catholic worship. So he, so he began to talk, write, uh, advocate for the, uh, the melding, the space made, made, space made for Black culture to be um, the, 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 the churchy word is enculturation, right? For, to be the Black community to be, or the Catholic church to be enculturated into the Black community, right? So it's not simply bringing a completely European experience into a Black community and asking Black people, expecting Black people to just simply, you know, swallow it down uh, and say, please, thank you very much, right? Uh, please, please more, right? But to say, when we encounter, when the gospel, as the Catholic Church understands it, encounters a new culture, uh, or a distinctive culture, I should say, that the gospel and the culture are transformed by the experience. So that's what enculturation would, would, would call it. And so Clarence, you know, Father Rivers was involved in this work in the Black community from day one of that work. Um, and I would say that probably into the early to late 70s and in the early 80s was maybe his, the highlight of his career. So the, the clergy caucus uh, helped to, as long as well as the, the sisters conference that developed right after that, um, helped to develop an office called the National Office of Black Catholics or for Black Catholics. That was, I, I believe in DC. Uh, and he was asked to be the first director of the Office of Culture within that office. And so that became a place from which he could do national workshops on culture and worship. And to, he founded the journal, Freeing the Spirit, and brought in many different scholars, both Black Catholic and non-Black Catholic, uh, you know, not, you know Cap Blacks who were not Catholic, uh, to write about what worship in the Black and Catholic context might be like. And so when I look at my copies of that, even now, you know, these old, really old copies of, of Freeing the Spirit, I see things that would surprise people that were being thought about and, and written about in the 1970s, let alone now in the, in the 2020s. So Father Rivers was really cutting edge and he was using his, his sensibility as an artist. He went, ended up, ended up going to the Institut Catholique in Paris to study liturgy there. He ended up uh, studying um, drama at the at Catholic University of America. Uh, and he eventually, um, you know, basically created a program for himself at the Union. Is it called, uh, Emily, do you remember the Union Institute? Is it Union Institute? Oh, a, I'd have to uh, look it up. Yeah, Union Institute where he, where he uh, earned a PhD. Mm -hmm. uh, and all and, the while continued yeah. to compose, you know. Right, yeah, he never stopped working really full time. Notable yeah. compositions um, to his name that are, are largely, um, unfortunately, unavailable because they're there. He housed all of his publications, including his music, under his own company. Yeah. Um, but that company um, 
is no longer publishing um, his his music. So it's, unfortunately, it results in it being unavailable for pastoral use because it's not published. I mean, people can sing it, obviously, but they would be doing so illegally because, you know, you have to pay copyright and things like that. So, um, so yeah, so really um, notable both as a composer and as a scholar and as a priest and as a, a liturgist, you know, he, he was a really just phenomenally talented human being. Yeah. And he ended up writing two, he actually wrote four books, um, two short ones and then two long ones, one called Soulful Worship with an extra L in it because uh, he wanted to emphasize that so the, you know, the fullness of the soul and then the spirit in worship was the second book. And they were really about a program for enculturation of Black Catholic worship. And more broadly, what Black Catholic worship and the Black experience could bring to the Catholic, especially the American Catholic experience, right? So, so those are some of the things that we would say about, you know, his history um, and why he is important because he was, he was the first. He was the first at, at really imagining what this would be like. Um, and his music, his music really, I would not call it gospel in the traditional, in what we would now think about gospel. His music was really influenced by the spirituals. Um, he worked with other composers and arrangers to help him with that music. Uh, and they brought but their experience of jazz and of classical music all to bear. And his music sounds familiar in the sense that it sounds, the melodies are you know, on the pentatonic scale um, and that they, Feel, they sound and feel like the spirituals, but they're different. They're neither the spirituals uh, or gospel music, um, and they are also not white American. Like they are, they're almost their own genre. Um, and so yeah, I, hard, I, I would love to, to hear them more often. Yeah, they're hard to classify. Yeah. 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 Um, one more thing, and I know this is a really long answer to your question, but um, but one thing to note is that both Eric and I, when we happened upon Father Rivers late in his life, um, in his 70s, 70 and above, um, we both found him in a state of relative obscurity. You know, he was living alone in Cincinnati. He was not um, regularly presiding at mass, um, maybe not even regularly attending mass. You know, when asked about this, he would say things like, well, I won't, I won't be bored, so I don't go. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and nothing was ever up to his aesthetic standards. Um, and so he, he, just wouldn't participate unless he was given full control over the liturgy. And, you know, and that was kind of difficult to do, <laughs> difficult to expect. And so he was kind of a fish out of water at that point. And, and we both, I think we've talked about the fact that we were both, even as young people struck by like, why this person is really important. Why, why is he just hanging out by himself over here? And, and I'm the only one knocking on his door. You know, he was really, he was really receptive to people who were, who seemed interested in him and his career. And that's why he allowed people like Eric and me. Um, and I'm not sure that there are any others to spend a ton of time with him, you know, or a lot of time with him and ask him questions and kind of pump him for, for his insights and things like that. Because, you know, we were some, I mean, I don't know of very many other people, um, who were really kind of sitting at his feet at that time of his life, um, which seems, you know, um, seems like a shame, seems like a missed opportunity. Yeah, yeah, I would say that there probably weren't any others our age. There were people across the country who knew who he was and were, who had spent time with him. He was a part of that whole movement of Black Catholics across the country. 
and they revered him. Like people would, you know, you know, genuflect a bit, you know, like when he came in the room, right? But he, by the time we met him, he was not in the middle of that, right? That that the period, the height of his career had had passed. So, like for example, it's important for people to know that the hymnal, the first Lead Me Guide Me hymnal, the first edition, is dedicated to Father Clarence Rivers. So if you open it up to its first page or two, it says they're dedicated to Father Clarence Rivers, the black, the father of Black Catholic worship, um, and it's a wonderful, you know, uh, uh, dedication. And some of his music is in the hymnal, uh, and the and the preliminary uh, documents, the the articles that introduce the hymnal make rep they both make reference to his contribution so people understood people who were in the know understood and so my experience also too i should say is father rivers was just a part of the milieu even though he wasn't presiding i did want to say that maybe i saw him once or twice at mass like after i found out who he was maybe he slipped in you know wearing a simple white shirt and a pair of pants and just sitting there that was it but i i think when i first met him people's response was, oh, this is Father Rivers. He was just a part of the Black Catholic community, the Catholic community of Cincinnati. And people's response, my, for me, and you got to go to the, I'm not going to tell the whole story because you got to go to the, uh, the podcast and hear it. But for me, my first experience, he was, he was dapper, man. He was blackity, 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 black, right? In the way that he presented himself, he simply did not care if you thought that that was too much for a priest, right? So like gold earrings and gold rings on his fingers and, and you know, very fancy tennis shoes, right? And a, and a, a, a you know, a bald head with a goatee, you know, and he was just too cool for school. Uh, and I mean, really he was. And so, yeah, um, and so I just didn't expect that from a black priest because I didn't know virtually any at that, that point. And so it just opened me up and said, oh, well, this is, if he can be black and Catholic, then I can be Catholic, right? Then there's space for me in this church. And so that, I, I, he just had a huge, he made a splash. I'm, I'm, I'm jumping the gun here, but he made a splash. He made a splash, that's true. Definitely a powerful and dynamic story um, that Father Rivers had. Um, though he died almost 20 years ago, I sense his legacy and impact heaven um, like enduring significance. Uh, what are some of the crucial themes and big takeaways we can obtain from his ministry? I will start by saying one of the main things that he taught me is that it is okay, not only is it okay, but it's good to have high standards. And I will tell you that when I was in high school, I went to a Catholic high school in Mount in uh, in Cincinnati, Mount Notre Dame High School, and um, I will I will tell it out. I was part of the music ministry in that high school, and I remember we had a volunteer who played the guitar to accompany us. And I remember at a rehearsal, she tuned her guitar, and it was not in tune. And I played the guitar, so I could tell that the guitar was not in tune. And then she proceeds to say, "Oh well, it's good enough for church." And to le- I I mean. Even as a 15 year old, I was like, why you're kidding, right? Mm. <laughs> and so, but I, I do think that our attitude is one of getting by with the aesthetic quality of our liturgy. And Father Rivers, well, he disabused me of, of those sorts of notions from a very early age. And I think it's my own natural inclination to have high standards. Um, and he, 
he was very much affirming of that. Um, I mean, you know, Deacon Royce uh, uh, Winters, who we talked to, or who I talked to in episode four, he tells the story about, you know, he's got a beautiful singing voice and Father Rivers used to, you know, kind of bring him in to, to, to sing for various liturgies. And he said he was mowing his grass one day and Father Rivers called him <laughs> and, and says, you need to come over to the, this church over here. And, and Deacon Royce says, well, what do you mean? He says, well, I'm presiding at a wedding. I've stopped the wedding because the singing is so bad. I've stopped the wedding. And so Deacon Royce had to go over, put his pants on and go over and sing at this wedding because Father Rivers was like, you two can't get married with the with, with this going on. This is not this is not OK, you know, and I mean, and that's an extreme example of having high aesthetic standards. But at the same time, somebody should have had those standards, you know, when they plan the wedding, you know, mm. I mean, this is like we can't just this is the most important act our church does. This is the most important act of the body of Christ. Ask anyone, <laughs> you know, sometimes I say things like that and people are like, nah, that's just because you're just saying that because you're a liturgist. No, ask anyone. It's the most important thing we do. And if, and if we're not doing it to the best of our resources and our abilities, then we're, we're doing, we're doing something wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't. We talked about me jumping in here too, and I, I um, he, I remember being involved in a couple of things that he had done. I'll give you an example, and um, I, maybe I should ask Efren. I should have asked him, can I use profane language? Because <laughs> let's just say it's all good, uh, man. It's all good. Okay, okay, all right. Because <laughs> let's just say that Father Rivers has not only did he have wisdom. But sometimes his wisdom was was laced with what the people in Star Trek call colorful metaphors. You know, right? Right? He his critique was so sometimes heavy. So I, I was working in a parish in Chicago, and he this is after I met him and uh, <clears throat> uh, and started taking liturgy really seriously and ended up working. I wasn't I don't know how I was really qualified, but I just and got got this job in the parish. Uh, and um, and we were planning a liturgy. We we had invited Father Rivers to come to Chicago, uh, and I really wanted people to get the full experience. So I said, "Oh, you must bring your vestments." So he sent. Uh, he bought this gigantic trunk that was, you know, he could ship, and he sent a trunk full of vestments that would then have to be pressed and prepared because they, you know, they had been shipped from Cincinnati, Chicago. And um, and I knew that he would want the 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 pastor um, to who was going to celebrate with Father Rivers to wear a cope, which is a very kind of an old, ancient vestment that is very regal. It's so regal that sometimes people feel uncomfortable. It's a cape. Um, it's a cape. Let's be honest. Right? Yes, it's, it's a, a cape. really large cape, right? It's, it's you know these were beautiful gold, older gold vestments. And, and, and there was nothing for Father Rivers that was too good, right? Like there's, you know, beauty was very important to him. So, uh, so he had a very uh, 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 beautiful set of vest, you know, vestments that, at his disposal. And he sent these vestments and the pastor who was relatively in his mid fifties, I think at the time, looked at me and said, incredulously, I have never worn a cope. 
And he, it was as if like, how could you want me to wear? Because in his mind, it was associated with a certain kind of, let's just say traditionalist conservative, you know, churchiness, theology and churchiness, which for Father Rivers, which is what Father Rivers was not, was not any of those things. Right, it was <laughs> right? just grand. It was just grand, it was grand. Yeah. Like it, it didn't have the same connotation to him. And I remember I said this to Father Rivers on the phone. And he's, I'm trying to get this right the first time. He said, oh, I am so tired of this middle-class white American egalitarian bullshit. Everybody has to be somebody, so nobody can be anybody. I'll never forget that, right? Like that's that, he was like, no, no, no. Like he would vest you after me, Eric, and Emily in the most fine vestments because he would say you, this was his wonderful phrases, right? He called us your grace. You are an heir to the throne of God and a co-heir with the Christ, therefore rightfully referred to as your grace. So like the notion that, you know, you could, that, that, that you could outdo God, no, 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 step up, right? And be grand. So that was really important to him that the, the, the standards for liturgy and for excellence. Excellence, yeah, excellence. yeah. It was an expression of human dignity yeah. to him. And, and this was such an important, um, this is such an important expression of blackness in liturgy, I think, mm. is that this emphasis on our dignity um, and I think that that's so relevant, but, but the way he expressed it was through these sometimes impossibly seeming high standards, but he, he never set it out thinking that you yeah. couldn't do it. You know, right. he, he just knew it was possible. And he was, a, he was there to challenge you, you know, Ron Har we interviewed Ron Harbor, um, recently, uh, for our most recent episodes. And he, um, he, he, he was told the first time he interacted with father rivers, he was the choir director and the choir was meant to be prepared to sing this music. And. And he was told after the fact that Father Rivers had told the organizer that if the choir wasn't sufficiently prepared, he would leave. He would just walk out. <laughs> so, but he stayed. He stayed. So that was good. But I mean, he just was just like, I'm not, I'm not here for the BS. I'm not here for, for mediocrity. I'm here for, and, and, and again, I think that's really. So, so, the, so another thing, so this is a really long yeah. first principle that he, he taught us. I think the other thing um that is so important was that um that that liturgy and culture are so intertwined they're really two sides of the same coin and and you know again this is somebody who who knew the liturgy inside and out from grade two you know i mean he he knew the liturgy and that's why he was good at adapting it is because he already knew it and already understood it so thoroughly he didn't kind of you know, go in without understanding it and start waving his wand and making a bunch of changes. He understood it thoroughly before he made changes. And I think that that is, is something to, um, to understand that we have to understand the liturgy before we seek to culturally adapt it. Um, what type of insights uh, do the guests that knew Father Rivers highlight when you speak to them? Uh, our experience of uh, Father Rivers in the podcast is consistent with what we experienced of him personally was that he he made a big splash. Uh, he, in, in most first impressions, was very generous, who expressed gratitude openly. So he, um, 
even though he was grand and he was very small, he was a short, small man with a large personality. He also was a very thoughtful, and I experienced him as pretty, pretty nuanced um, and, and erudite, intelligent. Uh, the guests that we've talked to do seem to acknowledge is that the work that Father Rivers did took a toll on him personally. Um, it was personally costly. And, and, that, and that played a role in sort of the marginalization that we observed um, of him later in life is that he was tired. He was tired of fighting. He was tired of fighting with people over simply having high standards or simply, simply making a space for black culture in Catholic worship and how that shouldn't be an offensive suggestion, you know? And so, um, so a lot of people have noticed that, that it took a toll on him. Uh, and my last question, in the context of the American Catholic Church, what do you think will be some of the most uh, significant legacies that he left behind for us? I would say in relationship to his enduring legacy, one of the things that we were gonna talk about um, in, in the last question uh, really connects this is, is that his intellectual, in, his intuitive and intellectual insight was that black culture had a great gift to offer Catholicism. African-American culture, specifically in black culture in general, uh, and that he was hell bent on making sure that that, that had been, that the, that the ideas inherent in the way in which black people do spirituality would be offered to the church. And he wasn't the only person to do that, but he did that with the liturgy in a, in a distinctively important way and that his writings, I, I would say you can't, I don't think you can do good scholarship on black American culture uh, and Catholicism without reading Father Rivers. You just can't. And what's sad about, you know, the fact that, you know, it's hard to find his books and you can maybe find them in some libraries, but like my copies are falling apart, you know, because of the way that they're bound uh, and, and they're aged, right? So I would love for one day for those books to be reprinted because they, even though they are dated in some ways, uh, because they were written in the middle of the early parts of the reform, right? Uh, when people were innovating in some ways that maybe um, people would be kind of scandalized at how much they were innovating at the time. Uh, today, they be, we might be scandalized, but really the insights are so key and to read him in his own words, to look at the book and see the photographs and the way he laid them out um, and, and the ways in which he thought ab about the nature of worship as drama, that's a real lasting contribution. If you remember when Cardinal Gregory um, was named Cardinal, uh, the first black American Cardinal, he, when he went to Rome, he wore a pectoral cross, a fat pectoral cross that was red, black, and green with a black dove in the middle of it. That was uh, commissioned by Father Clarence Rivers and designed by Deacon uh, David Camelli in Cincinnati. Uh, David Camelli did all of um, Clarence's design work. Uh, and he's in his mid eighties, uh, still going strong in Cincinnati now. Uh, but he did all of Clarence's design work and that pectoral cross visual components of black 
Catholicism, right? And so I'm interested in seeing that legacy that Father Rivers started that is really distinctive and mm-hmm. uh, enculturated in its own way, fresh, new. And I think that that's important. I think that it's it brings something very specifically Black and Catholic uh, and new. It's not Protestant and it's not white, right? In a broad sense, right? So in a, it's something unique, something new happened. And he talked about that in his work. He said, if you bring Blackness and Catholicism together, really bring it together, something new will happen. I think that the big takeaway for for all, really all Catholics, but especially white Catholics, is to understand that the liturgy is not inherently European and that some of the ways we celebrate it um, are European, but that we can um, change and adapt so that our liturgies are more inclusive and they might even be a little bit more invigorating and maybe even engaging and, and stimulating because we've made those changes. Well, I definitely appreciate Eric and Emily coming on and giving us this crucial information about Father Rivers. Um, so, yeah, thank you for coming on. And thank you for helping us to help people meet Father Rivers. Yeah, thank you so much. And we hope that they uh, join us. Uh, and uh, we hope that, that you enjoyed the conversation. And may the listeners pray and continue to keep you guys empowered for the vital work that you're doing for the body of Christ. And you guys can tune into the next episode of Saintly Witnesses. Mm-hmm.